Welcome to the Bible Archives, and today's episode is covering Genesis chapter 32. And I find this chapter incredibly fascinating, partly because this is this is the culmination, I think, of, of Jacob's story. This is the pinnacle. This is the fulcrum. And Jacob gets the most playtime in Genesis. But eventually his story is going to move to his son Joseph. So this kind of brings everything together. Everything since Jacob was born is coming to a head, and and especially since he left home. So I think this chapter is all about concluding a lot of parts of Jacob's life, and that's because I think this chapter is all about Jacob coming face to face with his past, quite literally. So let's get into Genesis chapter 32 in warning, this is going to be all over the place and be very full of content. But I think one of the fascinating components of this chapter is it's so relatable. It it does have a a pretty simple narrative structure, and that's something you see in Genesis occasionally, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of dialogue as well. So that's part of the reason, you know, I I think this chapter is accessible. It's an accessible narrative, you know, as far as the literature is concerned. Yeah. But I also think one of the reasons this is a, a beloved chapter, or I assume it's a beloved chapter, is because the content of the narrative is also very archetypal. Mm-hmm. I think there's an existential component of the trajectory of one's life, you know, where you can sense the movement of your past weaving into the present. You know, you look back, you see how all the various dots and, and layers connect to bear reality as it is now and, and implicate who you are and, and who you're becoming. And that's, I think, what you're seeing in in this story of Jacob. Absolutely. And this would be uh, what you would call that hero's journey that everybody talks about. It is a very archetypal story. And we can see this um, in many forms. A lot of famous people like Oedipus, like Romulus, mm-hmm. Hercules, even Cyrus the Persian, who was the man who uh, you know conquered Babylon and then released the, Juda- the Jewish people then. Mm-hmm. There's common elements to those kinds of legendary birth narratives and legendary stories. And it usually starts out, there's some kind of unusual birth. Uh, sometimes some special cosmic event happens, or sometimes it's the case where there's a threat to the infant. Um, some kind of family rivalry usually happens, some kind of conflict about the status of the people in the family. And so then the protagonist will have to flee home, and he will have some kind of adventures at home usually with the help of some mother figure. So we see that here Mm -hmm. with Rebecca. And then sometimes a faithful servant. And then there's also often some kind of magical helper or divine helper, which in the Israelite stories is usually always going to be Yahweh God then. And then you'll find success in that new environment, and it's always by some kind of trickery or strategy that the person shows themselves to be very clever and so that they are able to get success and wealth. And a lot of times that includes winning the maiden's hand, you know, so you have a marriage motif there. And then often on the reunion side of it, there will be a confrontation that comes down where there is a defeat or the death of the rival person in the home. So the, the, the protagonist will come back to its home, his home, and there's some kind of rivalry, which often results in the death of that rival or that father figure. What's unusual, though, about the Bible narratives, when they rewrite these, that conflict does not end in violence. It almost always ends in some kind of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And I think that has an important message because there's a kind of a a theological bend that the biblical writers have that they add to these stories when they write them down. It's almost like 
what came first, the Jacob cycle or the hero's journey? Absolutely. Because uh, <laughs> there's so much similarity and crossover. Um, but let's, let's also point out that Jacob doesn't know that the conflict won't end in violence. That's right. That's going to be a big part of this. But if you've been following Jacob's story so far, you've probably asked, when is all of this going to catch up with him? <laughs> you know, in, in my head, it's like Jacob is this train careening off the rails. And at some point, like this can't possibly keep going any longer. And, and theologically, we know that something has to be different eventually. So somehow Jacob has to actually embody the nature of the covenant, right? Like, yeah. well, in order for that to happen, something has to change and there has to be some sort of conflict. And now we're starting to get into like storytelling arcs and the hero's journey. And right. we can sense that that's been coming. Um, but one way I like to think about uh, Genesis 32 is like, this is the ultimate conversion story, right? And not mm -hmm. like a modern, you know, repent, turn or burn um, I look at what's happening with Jacob. And I, again, I think this is the part that feels so accessible to us. It's so easy to find ourselves in Jacob. And it's because this is like the, the adolescent maturation where you're reflecting on, on the trajectory of your being and you decide like you're going to begin moving in a different direction. This is something we all go through. Yeah. It's all development. It's conflict. You know, Genesis 32 is about existential being and, and identity and relationships and human nature. It's also about theology and the history of Israel and all of that. So mm -hmm. I, I really think there's a lot going on in, in, in this chapter. And I don't want to make this too abstract. Okay. Um, but all of this also deals with things like grace, salvation, sin. Uh, and I don't mean that by, you know, Jacob's dealing with you know, all the things he's done wrong. Poor guy, repentant sinner. It, it's more, it's less about like, hey, he's a bad guy and he needs to become a good guy. You know, he needs to accept Jesus into his heart and be a good person now. Yeah. It, it's not that. It, this is about... The covenant has been derailed. Jacob is responsible for that. He has not been participating in that. And Jacob needs to decide what kind of person he is going to be in order to help decide what kind of community Israel in the covenant is going to be. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean. It's salvation, sin, exile, grace. Uh, those aren't just abstract spiritual concepts, especially in Judaism. Like those are, those are real things that have physical and material representations. Um, and I do think as an aside, it's really helpful to think about both components of that, right? You know, oh, you are dirt and breath. Absolutely. Salvation isn't just something that happens with intellectual assent. It's something that mm -hmm. represents itself, manifests itself physically in the world. Yeah. So we need to maybe work on redefining those things in a, more biblical way. Anyways, um, with this movement that's happening with Jacob, if he's going to uh, move in a new direction, he's going to have to change. And, and this is the thing that I like about why I say this is the ultimate conversion story, because Jacob is sort of accepting the invitation to change. And, and it's, a, it's a conversion that happens perpetually. Yeah, you know it's the same thing you see in Acts with Paul, 
Saul becomes Paul. And that's the beginning of a process that's going to happen continuously, infinitively, always. Um, which, yes, I am saying that Christians need to take conversion more seriously. <laughs> so that's maybe the first angle that we should think about with Genesis 32. This is teaching us also how to convert, how to continue to grow and change and use conflict to experience transformation. And that is something that we always need to do. It's not just the thing you do one time when you raise your hand or go out for an altar call. It's something that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's you know, maybe first glimpse of uh, content that we're going to see within this. But the real content of this narrative is that Jacob is coming in contact with conflict and he needs to decide how he's going to interact with that conflict. And I think that's also why we see ourselves resonating with this story. Will Jacob, because his story so far has been a bunch of conflicts, right? So will he use the conflict here to imagine a different way of being in the new future? Or will he ignore the conflict, you know, avoid it, Mm -hmm. repress it, something we often do as human beings? Or will he fight it? Like sort of this reactive attempt to try to keep things the way they are or keep things going the way he wants them to be. And that's the version that we see Jacob using all the time. So what one is he going to do? And there's a whole bunch of psychological conversation we can have about what we see here in this story and how it relates to us. But, but, but ultimately Jacob has a conflict because his past catches up with him finally. And he decides to leave the conflict differently than when he entered it. Conflict is an invitation to never be the same. Another thing that Christians should really think more deeply about. And we are watching Jacob you know, he's getting cut open here and, and all of his junk is wounds and frailty. It's all getting revealed and he has to own it if things are going to be different. He, he gets confronted. He sort of re-experiences his life, like all sorts of these different paths catching up with him all at once here. And he has to make a decision. But this isn't just, let me, I know we're getting into the, 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 personal self-help category a little. This isn't just a decision that's going to affect him. It's not just a personal one. His decision will dictate what kind of people the whole tribe of Israel will be. Yeah, and I think that's why these stories do resonate, because a lot of them are very multi-layered, so Mm. that you have the immediate story of the person enacting this life and confronting these challenges, but then there's that overarching narrative that kind of fits into the Israelite history and their theology as a people of God. So it's like it shows how they affect their relationships then to the surrounding nations and to themselves as well as a a split nation, as they become split and then as they go into exile. It's almost helpful, like as you read about the splitting of the kingdoms or exile Mm -hmm. or the prophets or... Even if you start getting into the, the Gospels and the story of Jesus, you can't have any of that without what Jacob does back here. Right. So on one hand, we can look and we can go like, hey, we're all kind of like Jacob. We all, this this invitation of conversion, this, this invitation of conflict and how we handle that. Our past catching up with us, just like Jacob. We can, we can see ourselves in Jacob. Absolutely. But we also need to see ourselves in Jacob from the perspective of what we're a part of traces its way back to what happens in this historical moment. Yeah. Right. So there's two kind of entry points to relation to this chapter, which I think is very fascinating. Um, 
And, and all of this is important to see here. Like I said, this is very full, this conversation. Um, but I do want to make sure we're pointing out, you can't just turn this into a, a quaint self-help kind of story. Um, and a lot of times this narrative gets so simplified in that regard that we miss the, the theological and the cultural importance of what's going on here. Yeah. Um, so this is a good example of a text that you ought to read slowly. Right. You know, you can you can drive through the text. Those mm-hmm. are the, you know, read the Bible in a year. Yeah. And you miss a bunch of stuff. You can bike and you see a little bit more, but you're able to move faster or you can walk and you don't get very far, but you see it all. Yeah. Um, this Genesis 32 must be walked, <laughs> in my opinion. And and one of the primary questions when you walk this one that, that doesn't get asked often is what does this tell us about the God of Israel? So you can make this all self-help, you know, some business coach, whatever, uses this story as a way to challenge his, his clients. Or you can just turn this into, you know, overly esoteric details about theology and the spiritual experiences. Um, but we need to see all of the layers and one of them being... What does this what does it say about God? You know, we we usually only consider that question to the extent, you know, that oh, see, look, God is gracious. See, God will forgive you if you repent. Mm-hmm. But the very fact that God has put the covenant in the hands of someone like Jacob tells us something about this God. And the and the fact that God doesn't just jump in and radically take control tells us something else about this God. And we've talked a lot so far about how the patriarchs are, are presented as very flawed, which is important because it reveals that, you know, the vitality of Israel isn't dependent on people. But this God also gives lots of agency to human beings and works with the decisions that they make. At the same time, this God doesn't do that from a distance either. So, so it's not deism. We're, we're presented a very particular uh, depiction of what the God of Israel is supposed to be like. Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting because right alongside those folkloric motifs, you see these common concepts like the least likely person is being the one who's chosen then to carry forth the covenant. And then those challenges to the power structures in place. So like with Jacob, there's a challenge to that idea of primogeniture. It should have been his older brother, but it's Jacob. Or mm-hmm. when we get down to Joseph, and of course we know the story, so there's no spoiler alert here, how he uh, rises to a high rank in that, in that foreign societal structure. But then there's that higher focus about the nature of God, like you're talking about. It's, it's about then how does God react with humans? And then what does that say about the identity of the people Israel and then their dependence on that power of God to keep the promises? So we see these motifs incurring in, in the prophets, like in Isaiah, and even more so explicitly in Hosea. He talks about, um, he actually mentions this story, when Yahweh calls in judgment upon Judah. So sometimes the scholars argue, but it almost seems as if Hosea is accusing Judah or Jacob to trying to prevail over God's self, kind of the same way he does with the same trickery and grasping that was inherent to the story that we see there. So it's like these stories have been known a long time, but then they get reimagined by these people in exile, and it helps them to explain how they went through that experience and then how they're supposed to experience God from that point. Yeah, Uh, and and all of these things are are important to keep in mind. 
Mm-hmm. All right. How how does Genesis 32 help you understand what goes on with the covenant later in exile and the second temple period even? Right. But how does what happens to Jacob help us understand ourselves as humans? Mm-hmm. How, how does it help us understand ourselves as humans who are still part of that covenant? Mm-hmm. But th- then what does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about uh, salvation? What, what does this tell us about the world that we live in too? Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of layers going on to this. And uh, at this point, we're almost 20 minutes in and we haven't even looked at the story. <laughs> so let's look at how the actual narrative unfolds. Um, and, and let's we'll try to point out what we see um, and how that's emphasized theologically, what it means for the covenant, but also you know what we can learn from this as human beings. We rarely read these uh, within the narrative arc of which they're written. Like the, it's almost like the more that a story shows up in a devotional, the less you're going to understand it. Mm-hmm. So remember, Jacob ran away from home because he lied to his dad and he stole from his brother. And the, the wisdom of his mother, who was possibly in on the heist, sent him to his ancestral family home to marry so that he could truly con continue the covenantal line. So the deceiver, Jacob, which is what his name means, escapes. And then he encounters Adonai in in a profound yet mundane way, you know, in a certain place. And he has that dream. And then he has this whole episode that lasts decades where we see him, you know, very questionably start his family, continues the legacy, right? All including tons and tons of deception. And now for the first time since he was young, he's about to re-enter the former story. Yeah, and I think that we get the hint of that because right at the beginning of chapter 32, he has an encounter with some angels that greet him, it says. And this is kind of reminiscent of Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre when the angels come to visit them. And it seems to me there's like a forewarning here of the supernatural life-altering event that's about to happen. And you'll see a pattern as you read the chapters as you read through Genesis here in this story. For example, Abraham separates from Lot. Jacob uh, separates from Laban. And then there's kind of this war language and property spoils are being divided. So Abraham and Lot go separate ways because they both had too much stuff. Jacob has to divide his stuff from Esau in order to avoid war. So he's setting himself into two camps. Abraham in chapter 15 has this weird midnight encounter with God in the smoke pot that he does. And then Jacob, of course, wrestles with a being by a dark river. And then finally, it kind of indicates this idea that Jacob is entering old territory. And this has already been encountered, though, by his his grandfather, Abraham. Yeah, it connects, it's connecting him to his yeah. ancestry. Yeah, it does. And so it's like, how are we going to see his conduct then compare or maybe contrast to the way uh, Abraham did that? And the whole thing then gets turned upside down by Esau, who ends up actually appearing more like Abraham, as we will see. So, mm-hmm. it, But it's important to note that he's literally re-entering the same land. Yeah. And it's been a while and as a result, that's that's kind of bringing his story to a head. So we should be noticing kind of like flashing warning signs like, hey, this is monumental. But also of note, the last time he was here, his brother was wanting to kill him. <laughs> and we get a sense of the difficulty of re-entry. And I think this is another one of those human experiences that we can connect to. How many times do we leave a space 
that contained our existence go off and continue our narrative elsewhere and then return to that former space. But now we're different. More has happened. You never come back to the same space twice. Yeah. You come back to the same space with all sorts of new new layers. Mm-hmm. So the first thing Jacob does upon reentry is he sends messengers to his brother his brother Esau. Uh, and we should, as we're reading this, we should know exactly why he's doing that. They haven't seen each other in years. Um, and there's there's an assumption here that Jacob's still a wanted man. Ironically, the space he's leaving has the same difficulty. Yeah, so he, he's kind of caught between a rock he and can't a hard go place back, here. He can't go back to either <laughs> right. at this point. So then we see um, in verse 3 that you know, Jacob sends messengers in the country of Edom. And eventually, that's going to be the tribe that's being referenced here. And instructs them in verse 4 to tell Esau of Jacob's return. Um, Now, Edom and Esau are connected. This whole bit has a a slight recall to it. Edom means red. It becomes a tribe that's going to be really close to Judah. Yeah. Um, In fact, the the Gentile name can easily be confused with Judaism. I think it's Idumean. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, Esau loses the birthright by eating the red, red stuff. So kind of a knock on the uh, etymology of the tribe there. Mm-hmm. And then Esau means hairy. And all of this goes back to the, the childhood stories of these twins. Um, and we're also told of another location here, Seir, um, which also means hairy. Hmm. So Jacob sends messengers to his hairy brother in the land of hairiness in the country of red. That's that's what all that means. Wow. Um, and, and really, I really I think that is seriously supposed to just be a bunch of flashbacks, sort mm-hmm. of reminding you of everything that led to this point. And then Jacob gives his message, uh, and this happens in verse four, going into verse five, um, and and this is loaded. He calls himself Esau's servant. That's a first, by the way. And then he gives the backstory of his time with Laban, and uh, he emphasizes his wealth. You know, obviously, Jacob leaves out some important details here, like that he's married with a bunch of kids, Mm -hmm. which is important for the ancestral continuation of Isaac's blessing that he stole. Mm -hmm. And is the whole reason his mother sent him to Laban. He leaves that out. And uh, he requests Esau's favor. Um, In other words, don't kill me. But this is all uh, this is all vassal language. He's Esau's servant and requests his favor. He he has wealth that you know would be giving that detail kind of gives some ability to sway an argument here. Um, but he leaves out the threatening stuff like, yeah. "Hey, I actually you know followed through with the birthright thing and the blessing and got a big tribe going." Mm-hmm. Doesn't say anything about about that. Um, but. Overall, Jacob is elevating Esau at Jacob's submission, which isn't true uh, that we we know from reading the whole story. Jacob has the authority here because he stole it. Mm -hmm. But you can kind of see still Jacob's deceptions at work. And Jacob is always, he's always willing to do anything for his own self-preservation and gain. That's been the story so far. Yeah. So then verse six, uh, the messengers return. And this sounds like, like a military report. 
We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. So I like reading that, and maybe it's my own bias. I like reading that as a military report, like the scout returns, and uh, the army's about 400 400 in size. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to meet him or do you want to run away? And and I think that is important mm-hmm. because we tend to see like, oh, Jacob and his, you know, little flock following along. No, this these would be huge caravans. Oh, yeah, they're tribes. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jacob, of course, is afraid and he launches into a strategy. He divides his entourage into two companies. You know, maybe he's, you know, trying to outflank his brother here. R- really? He's willing to lose half of his stuff as long as some survives. So, preservation. Mm -hmm. And this makes you think. This isn't brought up explicitly in the text. It makes me think. Which children and wives were in which? Yeah. Did he try to give one company a better chance? If so, who did he put in that one? And and I, I like thinking, like, what's the historical hypothetical if one of these companies... And half of Israel's future tribe are killed. Wow. Yeah. How does that play out? Mm-hmm. And which ones would that be? You know, I'm just trying right. to imagine the, 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 the details that could exist here. Um, and then, like a good faithful servant, in verse 9, Jacob prays. Now, let's put our religious hats on here. The, the, the esoteric, abstract, spiritual realm. Let's go there for a second, because this is backwards. Jacob acts and then prays, right? <laughs> right, right, yeah. And, and the prayer is revealing itself. So this is how it goes. Oh, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. Uh, you know, that's a, a, a proper recognition of lineage. Oh, yeah. Which, which you remember, we haven't seen that from Jacob yet. Well, you know, in my mind, it's like he's reminding God of his genealogy, maybe <laughs> hoping that because even though he's a stinker, because of you know he'll, the merit of his fathers will stand for him. You There's know? no reason that you should help <laughs> me, but remember, I'm related to these guys. Exactly. Uh, yeah, he's playing that card. And then we get this humble confession. I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. And I like the twist here. For with only my staff, I cross the Jordan. Instead, what should it say? You brought me across the Jordan. And Jacob continues, and now I have become two companies. Again, instead, it should be Jacob saying, you made me into two companies. Jacob acts, then he decides to pray. He he kind of plays the family card and then... It sounds like he's still taking credit for everything. Now, it, it could just be him acknowledging that none of this was part of the plan and he, and he did it anyway, and, and this has all been great providence. Um, but interesting way to pray there. Yeah. And then you get the request. <clears throat> Deliver me, please, from the hand of my brother, for I am afraid of him. He may come and kill us all, the mothers with the children, Yet you have said that you would do good to me and make the offspring increase. Which God did say. Mm-hmm. And you can sense the claim here. God, are you going to hold up your end of the deal? Is that the prayer that Jacob offers? Is it a prayer or is it a demand? And 
we have the benefit of reading ahead. We know that Esau isn't even coming to attack. Right. This is all an assumption. And it's like God is thinking here, deliver you from what? There's nothing to deliver you from except yourself. And that's the direction this whole thing's actually going. So it gets set up as like this military conflict that's about to happen. And we're wondering like, uh-oh, this this could be huge. Yeah. And, and as this is going on, it, there's all these hints that this is just about Jacob. This has nothing to do with anything else. And, and you got to kind of see, like, who's the real problem for Jacob here? Well, Jacob is. And, and that's how it's always been. Jacob, through all of this, has created his own mess. And how has he created it? By self-preservation. And that same thing is happening here. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's like you see both this divine pattern and this mundane life of the things that Jacob does. But it's funny because all this strategizing that he's doing, Yes, like you said, we read ahead, so we know he does all this strategizing. It all comes to nothing. But the very most important thing that happens to him is this unanticipated, mysterious event that he could not plan for. Mm -hmm. So it's like all this trickery, and there's no way that he could foresee what was actually yeah, coming it, upon him. It's almost like the whole narrative so far has just been kind of peeling the circumstances around Jacob back mm -hmm. to you get to the point where it's just Jacob left. Yeah. It's like that's the thing he cannot plan for. And again, this isn't like a self-help podcast, but this is one of those accessible features. Yeah. Like how much time do we spend trying to solve problems <laughs> and puzzles and conflicts? And in the end, it's us. Yeah. We are the creators of our own messes most of the time. And it's going to take this huge re-entry event for eventually Jacob to be thrown into the midst of something where it's like, you're going to have to deal with this now. Yeah. But don't lose, don't lose sight that even in, in all of these other layers still, Jacob's still acting the same way. He's mm -hmm. being deceptive. He, he's, he's taking credit for things. Um, he's trying to, to work his way around the potential problem all the while making sure that he's going to survive this and he's going to be okay. And he's not going to lose all of his stuff. He'll, he'll compromise at least half. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's the same Jacob. And that's the problem. And by the time you get to verse 13, um, Jacob then creates two waves of gifts, a bunch of his wealth. And he separates them so that if one is destroyed, the others can respond. So he's sending an entourage mm -hmm. to, uh, to, to as a vassal, right, of gifts. And in case one's just completely killed and wiped out, he's got another one ready to go so that he can buy his time with his brother Esau. And then Jacob does something really interesting. Um, and I think it's something sensible, you know, under the belief that like he could get attacked. He puts himself at the back of the caravan. And part of this hope is that Jacob can shower Esau with gifts so that by the time Esau comes in contact, Esau won't kill him and possibly accept him because mm -hmm. Jacob's just been giving away all of his stuff. Yeah. But he puts himself in the back. He could, you know, be the hero and go to the front and face the consequences with his brother, finding out there were none. Right. And that would have made for a better situation for everybody. But if he would have done that, we wouldn't have gotten this really fascinating <laughs> story. Because then Jacob prepares to spend the night in the camp in the back by himself. 
And this takes us into the end of the chapter. And this is the part that most people read, most people know about. Oh, for sure. This is Um, the story. But it's worth pointing out here, right? Remember, we're walking through this. We're not driving, not even biking. We're walking. And you should, if you're paying attention, notice that the details aren't completely clear. But one perspective is that he makes camp on the side of a river so that the river is between him and the the potential battle, which this is great military strategy. And in verse 22, uh, we find out that during the night, he he sends these entourages and companies across the river. And this includes his family and everything that he had. So verse 24 begins by saying... Jacob was left alone. And this is one of those loaded phrases. Because has Jacob actually been alone this whole time? Like Hmm. existentially. Yeah. Has he created this world where he has much, but he is actually alone and and isolated and separated from the world around him? Mm -hmm. The way that I've put this before is, has Jacob been living a fiction this entire time? Yeah, it's almost like he's got a play that he's doing where he's moving all these pieces around to create some kind of a story about himself. Yeah, and and this is the thing. is like you can be surrounded by people and things and mm-hmm. actually be alone. Yeah. And, and if you have treated others as these objects for your own gain, right? you haven't been connected to anybody. You haven't been in relationship with anybody. And that's one of the insinuations that we can make. Jacob's now alone, literally. And that's a representation of what he's been doing this entire time. Um, but let's just keep with the physical. He's he's alone now because right. he sends everybody across, um, which is not very kind of him. <laughs> at, at the least, he's going to survive, even if everything else is either taken or killed. Yeah, including his wife and children. Both or all four wives and children. So, and, and that's yeah. the thing. Why not keep his family with him? Yeah, like, at the least, he could escape with this mm-hmm. progeny that he created. Sure, but no. Um, and and some some of the commentary on on this um, that is very critical of Jacob is that he's willing to have everything destroyed if it means he can still escape. You know, he still has a river between them, mm-hmm. and that's been. That's been the thing with Jacob's self-preservation, you know? So essentially this kind of appears to be what Jacob's always done. Everyone and everything is a pawn in his game of striving. But now that he's finally alone, who can he deceive? And this is the thing. He hasn't been by himself since that dream that sent him to Laban. There's no one left to use. You know, he's he's finally kind of found what he's been looking for. Um, and that's that's the conflict of Jacob's life. Yeah. And now here it is. It's coming to bear. There's nowhere else to go. There's no one or nothing that he can hide behind. He's just vulnerably there alone. And in verse 24, the wrestling match begins. The, yeah. the famous wrestling match that we've always heard about. So right? many beautiful pieces of art have been created around that story. This is true. Mm-hmm. This is true. But because of how popular this is, right. it tends uh, it's it's like the 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 bottom of a river. Familiarity familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. So, this is where we really got to slow down. Um and 
this slowing down is gonna they're gonna help us break the 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 familiarity. You know, you, this is one of those you're gonna tend to gloss over this because oh, you just, you've heard it so many times. But for those those smooth over stones in a river, sometimes you gotta throw something into that water to make you stop and see and pay attention. If you take the same path through a text every single time, you're gonna miss stuff. So let's try to make sure we don't do that here. This is the story about when Jacob wrestles God, right? Right. We all know that. We've seen the paintings. Mm-hmm. We've we read the devotionals, heard the sermons, right? Um, it doesn't necessarily say that. We just assume that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. So first, we have another issue uh, that we have to handle with the word wrestle itself, right? We can't picture some sort of WWE event, you know, with a ring and all that. Um, And that's supposed to be kind of funny, but so seriously wrestling here, isn't the sport that we're familiar with. These are different things. Uh, And the language here is really difficult to capture in English. Um, And so, you know, when we translate this, we use wrestle to try and capture the intensity of it. But this is about conflict, you know, which you can have with the word wrestle. That makes sense. I'm not saying that's a bad translation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's interesting because this is the same word that they use when they talk about him and his brother wrestling in Rebecca's womb. Mm -hmm. So it's like uh, I'm always admire how these biblical writers can write these tightly written, all these bits of foreshadowing come in, all these uses of words to help us to understand the context of these things. Yeah, and and that's like... When we think of it that way, we go, oh, they're in there and there's, you know, all of the lights and the stuff of the wrestling match. Right. And no, it's yeah, it's, no, it's something is... else. So we, I, mm-hmm. I'm trying to challenge us, like, see this beyond the modern version of wrestling that we think of. Yeah. Um, and specifically, this is a conflict of ruin. And that that's where the definition starts becoming important. So some etymology talks about how this word used here for wrestle, abach, is the kind of conflict that makes small. Sometimes you even see it of turning into dust. So another way to understand this is this is the story where Jacob gets turned into dust. And if that isn't the most human, humbling, put a proper sense of perspective in place image, then I don't know what is. And again, that's super accessible for us. Mm-hmm. So the moments where you feel small and, and incoherent and unable to function, uh, okay, that's, that's what this means by wrestling. That's the experience. Now, that, so that's the first thing we have to confront. Second, who is Jacob wrestling? Well, it tells us. A man, an Aish. We've seen that word in Genesis a whole lot. And this is the same word used for the initial human life form in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And Aish is putting Jacob into dust in the night until the light of the next day begins. Oh, wow. Okay. Is this story with Jacob actually about him experiencing the recreation of the world? He's entering into the creation of the human person that is actually his life that is necessary for the covenant to be all it's meant to be. This is conflict. And so it's bigger than, you know, Jacob just got into a wrestling match with God. 
it's Jacob is experiencing something that's almost taking him back to the essence of what a human is supposed to be. That is that what he's wrestling? Not necessarily God, but also very transcendent. Is he is the Aish here actually the whole concept of being a human being itself? And this would go really well with how conflict works. The possibility, the invitation of it is to become something on the other side. It's about transformation, right? So there's that layer to see with conflict, but there's also some other interesting details here. Yeah, you have such a cool interpretation here, but and I don't want to detract from it, but I do think there's a lot of layers. Anytime we're interpreting anything like this, you can find all kinds of different ways, different directions to go into it. And one of the things I really see, because this is where my mind tends to go, are, again, all those folkloric motifs we see here. There's this idea of encountering a being in a river that invokes to me that image of a river spirit that challenges some kind of a crossing. Notice, for example, the similarity to the name of the river to the word that you gave us, wrestling or conflict. So it's abak jabak. And this is a connotation of evaporation, the way the being itself that Jacob is wrestling disappears at daybreak, because rivers are liminal spaces. And we see this in mythologies about rivers, like being barriers or being often being guarded by strange beings. Um, there's the Larana, or there's this mysterious ferryman like Sharon, who you have to, who takes you across the river Styx. Um, there's the... Uh, there's the, um, the, the Joel River that you have to cross to get to Valhalla. And we find this motif even embedded in children's stories like the three billy goats gruff and the troll. Yeah. So there's this idea of passing from one life to another. Mm. And in the Israelite consciousness then, that idea of crossing water is kind of an indication of a life-altering change sure. that's about yeah. to happen. So you see it here and you see it in the Exodus story. And then there's another kind of motif that you see, and that's the fact that this man, this Ish, is desperate to get away before daylight, and that he refuses to give his name. So names are often guarded because we know that those names, to give someone your name, gives them power over you. Mm-hmm. I think Rumpelstiltskin, for example. So the reason I bring this stuff up is because it can show us how old some of these stories are. So folklorists might be able to even date these stories in the Bible based on when we first see these particular characters and motifs appear in these ancient Near Eastern mythologies. So it can help to show us like the different way that Israel tells their stories. Mm -hmm. So to separate themselves out from the people around them. And I always bring this up because it is a major influence on the entire book of Genesis. It won't be the last time you hear me say that. And it may also have something to do with the people who then later, the editors who actually wrote these stories down based on what they left in what parts of the story they change, and then how those things parallel those narratives that get told. Yeah, and we we do cover some of that uh, that process in, mm-hmm. in the overview episode of Genesis, which was a long time ago now. Yeah. Um, but there's there's a lot of intentional use there. But all like seriously, I went into this weird take on uh, Genesis one and two, helping us understand what's going on with conflict. And then we can jump right into folkloric history. Mm -hmm. This chapter is loaded. It absolutely is. So let's, uh, we'll, we'll come back to a couple of those thoughts. Um, but let's keep going with the story because the next thing we see is that the Aish doesn't prevail. Mm -hmm. Um, and I love, I love that Jacob has spent his life winning and overcoming and striving and 
even here. Yeah. He's he's winning again. And so the Aish does something very interesting. The Aish strikes Jacob on the hip. Why? And this is one example. You will not hear me say this very often. <laughs> one example where the King James Version might actually have a better translation than more modern English Bibles. Because the word here is yarek. And, and it can mean outside of the thigh, like so hip could work there, mm-hmm. or uh, the thigh in, in general. But this is the same part of the body that you grab when passing on a blessing. So you saw this back with Isaac. Yeah. Um, and you're going to see it again with Jacob and his sons that you would you would grab the thigh. So you see this a lot within within the, the Jewish understanding. Mm-hmm. You know, so and so, so will put their hand under so-and-so's thigh. And some commentary describes Yarek as the seat of procreative power. <laughs> Hopefully you're getting the point. You don't have to go any further, yeah. Jacob doesn't get struck on the hip. <laughs> At least what we think of as hip. It's not a great translation, but I understand why you would want to divert from mm-hmm. what's actually being a referred bit of to. euphemistic language there. Yes. But it's also important to understand why... Because you read hip and you're like, what's the big deal with the hip? Like, So he's just getting old and needs a replacement? No, 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 no. There's much more meaning being implied here that you have to see beyond just hip. So why does the IE strike the Yerek? Because that is how the blessing will be passed along. And just as uh, Jacob gets struck in his that area, uh, later his sons are going to put their hand under the thigh, mm-hmm. this same space that has been struck in this transformative moment, okay? Um, so you have to see that the Aish is kind of taking a crotch shot at Jacob. Uh, and that would all be foul play in modern wrestling. You're not supposed to do that. I sure hope not. But it tangibly marks the symbolic nature of the problem. Yeah. Jacob gets hit in the covenantal groin and is confronted with the blessing he's carrying and how it will be enacted. That's what's going on. And, and despite all of the other details here, this is also a, a reminder to anyone reading this that the ability to bless transcends the human person. Jacob ultimately is reminded that he does not completely control the continuation of the covenant. Oh, yeah. And now he's going to have that reminder with him forever. Oh, yeah. He may think he stole it, but it really didn't have anything to do with his actions. Yeah. So that that's uh, incredibly significant. And again, we miss that or mm-hmm. we're just unwilling to talk about the implication of that. The same way we won't talk about circumcision mm-hmm. and, and why that's actually a really meaningful uh, intergenerational ritual. But I digress. Here's another question. So who is the man? Who is the Aish? And this is where we go, oh, it's God. Right. God has shown up in disguise, but it, it's God. Sometimes you'll see someone go, oh, it's an angel. Mm-hmm. Right? Some kind of angel. Okay. Um, but some rabbis, which if you're going to study Torah, you should probably consult the rabbis at some level. Some rabbis complicate this and say that the man Jacob wrestles with is actually Jacob. It's himself. Hmm. Because literally Jacob is alone. That yeah. com- complete vulnerability 
uh, forces him to confront himself. Jacob is, this is how it's sometimes portrayed. Jacob is wrestling with the man he is and the man he needs to be because he has finally removed everything in the way that he's been hiding behind this whole time. And, and honestly, it's helpful to consider that it actually might be all of the above. Oh, yeah. Who does he wrestle? Well, all of those. Yeah. But we can't miss the importance of him confronting himself here. Um, and I really like the picture of Jacob sort of just thrashing around mm-hmm. on the ground. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's it's like this happens in movies sometimes where you see somebody acting and, and is shot from their perspective and there's this other person. And, mm-hmm. and then you see it from somebody who's like an onlooker, their vantage point, And it's like, what is that guy doing? Just thrashing around on the ground. I imagine yeah, that's what yeah. this was like. If we had movies of this scene. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like if the news was there reporting <laughs> on what happened with Jacob. Anyways, um, all of the above is probably the best answer, but don't forget about that that alone one. That's important. Right. Um, because let's go back to this connection with Genesis 1 and 2. The wrestling happens through the darkness. And think back to how Genesis 1 begins. The tohu vavohu, the, the darkness uh, the chaos, that liminal space you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and the wrestling keeps going until the night The night gives way to light. There was evening and there was morning the first day. Okay, yeah. And as day breaks, the wrestling stops. So I, I do think that it's worth saying that this Aish connection uh, to to the first humans, Jacob and his situation kind of returning and this recreation happening and uh, the, the night, there was night and then there was light. And I, I think all of that is connected. Mm-hmm. But uh, Jacob's not done in, in the story. And you get to verse 26 and uh, this takes maybe an unexpected turn, but maybe it shouldn't be so unexpected because Jacob stops, uh, the, the day is breaking But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And I just kind of look at this as classic Jacob being Jacob, Mm -hmm. the the deceiver, getting every inch of benefit from himself. Like, hey, there's an opportunity here and uh, I could walk away with here with more than I came in. Mm -hmm. Great. Bless me. Um, And this sounds a lot like Genesis 28 to me. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. If you remember that, uh, Jacob uses the whole divine dream happens and Jacob ends by, and he says, if you will do all of these things for me, then I'll go ahead and listen. Yeah. It's like, what, what is your problem, man? Or, uh, in the prayer we just read, you know, this doesn't look good for me. And and remember you said you were going to make things good for me. So come on, God, here is just Jacob being Jacob. Um, I'll concede once I get my blessing. It's like, Sound familiar? Hmm. It should. And then the Aish responds in verse 27 with another very familiar phrase. What is your name? Mm. And I'd like to imagine if this was a modern film, right, that all of the sound goes silent here and the screen cuts back and, and these quick, like almost impartial shots of Isaac on his deathbed. Yeah. That would make a good somebody. I'm I'm too lazy to go make that short film, but somebody should do it. Someone needs to make a movie. It'd be good. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Because the last time Jacob heard this question was from his dying father when Jacob stole the covenantal blessing by pretending to be somebody else. Yeah. And I can just picture Jacob having this moment where like time slows down and it's like he's being confronted by his dead father here. Oh, yeah. So who is he wrestling? Well, is it God? Is it an angel? Is it himself? Yeah. Is it is it his past? Is it his family? It's like all these memories yeah. coming forward in the middle of the night, you know, yeah, three o'clock moment for him. And that's where you got to see all the layers here. Seriously. And uh, the last time Jacob answered this question, do you remember what he said? He said, my name is Esau. And I think that connection, just his life of pretending and using and deceiving and stealing and manipulating in this creation evoking moment of isolation and conflict, that's all placed right in front of Jacob. And it's almost like Jacob is being asked, are you ready to stop? Who are you going to be? Look at all the destruction you have left in your wake. Are you ready to own that? And Jacob answers the question. And for the first time, he says, I am Jacob. Which in Hebrew actually says, I am a deceiver. Wow. He owns it. Mm-hmm. By saying his name in that moment, he is, he is acknowledging everything that has been the story thus far. And now we can start putting things back together. But moving through the conflict, imagining a different trajectory, turning around, repenting, yep. this perpetual conversion of change that we're all invited into, it starts there. It starts with acknowledging where things currently are. That's how you begin moving through conflict. And, and this uh, also is where Jacob's name changes. Mm-hmm. So that's where you, like, that all was all me, very self-help, right? <laughs> This is the psychology of conflict and all of that great stuff. In, in fact, when I talk about conflict, I always use Jacob's story to as a, as a way to see that. Mm-hmm. But his name now changes. Yeah. And so, what does it change to? Israel. From here on out, there's still a nation called Israel. That's right. And so that moment, everything we just talked about in that moment for Jacob has to be understood to understand who Israel is and is supposed to be. And so that's where it, this moves way past your self-help. This isn't just about how you're going to figure out your conflicts. This is, do you understand this is the nature of this particular covenant of this movement that's supposed to be impacting the earth in some way? Right. Um, and and I think we've talked about this before of common part of culture being names and identity. Especially them. Yeah, in right? the ancient Near East, it was very important. So a name change means that Jacob's identity is changing. Again, goes into the whole creation, evoking conflict thing. Right. Um, he's no longer going to be called deceiver. He's going to be called Yisrael, which means God prevails. Which is why people read this and they say, oh, he wrestled with God. God ended up prevailing. That's yeah, where that comes from, yeah. which is fine. But the commentary offered uh, on, on Jacob's name in verse 28 is that you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Is this because in Jacob prevailing over himself and his past and his story and changing, 
does that also mean God prevails too? Huh. So is it is it is it not so much Jacob wrestling with God, but the the covenant of God is going to win the day here because Jacob actually took this seriously, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, sure. That's uh, it, it, if you if you read it as he wrestled with God, that next line in verse twenty eight is a little bit problematic. Um, but we also weren't told that God was wrestling at all, right? And so is this also when you have that kind of vulnerable conflict? When you peel back all of those layers and you're left with just yourself and you actually have to confront what's really going on, are you actually engaging with something divine in those moments? Is that a sacred, holy space? You know, the the liminal space, is that a transcendent space? It's that holy of holies you carry within yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and so is the real kind of raw essence of this moment, Mm -hmm. a space where God already dwells, just waiting for you to open up to it. Yeah. Is this actually the first time God was really with Jacob, that God's been around Jacob so far, but right. until Jacob was willing to open into that space, the covenant hasn't been able to happen because God hasn't been able to be with Jacob. Yeah. And this brings up like impassibility and, you know, is, is God the one determining things or does God require humans to act? And I don't want to get into all that right now, uh, but there's something about, recognizing when we invite ourselves into this experience that we see with Jacob, we're entering something divine there. And it makes for divine possibilities as well. Um, and and from here on out, uh, this is going to be Jacob's new name. And this is going to be the identity of Israel, mm-hmm. the tribe. And it starts here. Uh, and I think you got to understand, a people who have this kind of backstory... And this kind of transformation at, at the root of their existence, it, it's like Israel is meant to be constantly reminded of where they come from here. Yeah, definitely. And I also think that's why this chapter is so important too. Um, but the chapter's not done. Verse 29, Jacob asked the name of the Aish, but the man doesn't give it. Nope. And so Jacob calls the place Penuel which is uh, an actual location mm-hmm. later in history. But the name means facing God. Mm-hmm. Again, that's why we go, Jacob wrestled God there. Right. And this makes, uh, this makes us one of the only stories where someone claims to experience transcendence and survive. Um, it's not technically possible. I believe we've brought that up yeah, so far Yeah, I think we have. You podcast. cannot see the face of God and live. Yeah. And, and yet... Here's Abraham arguing with angels or Hannah in the wilderness, or not Hannah, right. uh, Hagar. In the and it's going to come up specifically in Exodus. Yeah, it's the absolutely. whole famous story of Moses has to hide in the cleft of the rock. And right. I think they wrote a hymn about it too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's all because of how Israel communicates transcendence, right? Right. Which I, I love how they do that. Um, so this would make one of the only people to experience transcendence and survive. But it still has this uncertainty of, but how was God actually there? How What was that presence like? Was it through this Aish? But mm-hmm. it was the Aish actually Jacob the whole time? Is this sort of this other part of Jacob? Mm-hmm. Was God on the side like watching? Was God the actual event itself that Jacob finds through his own striving? And I also love considering why the Aish doesn't answer. Because he doesn't need to. He hasn't been pretending to be someone else, so mm-hmm. the question's unnecessary. Okay. And then in verse 31, 
Jacob leaves. Everyone else is gone. The sun has risen, darkness to light, and he walks away. But with one of my favorite details and possibly the entire Bible, he walks away with a limp. You cannot come out of conflict the same. And Jacob is forever marked in his blessing parts. <laughs> we should start calling it that now. Yeah, there you go. And we're given this note that Israel always remembers the limp. And Jacob doesn't just, just walk with a limp. The whole tribe does now. Which means we do too. That's right. It's like, yes, he got this blessing, but because it was at his brother's expense, it's almost like now he can't walk straight until that's resolved. And I often wonder if these brother stories have got something to do with that split between Israel and Judah, or maybe mm. even the idea of there's a recognition of the kinship with some of the other tribes around them, you know, and it's like, because they know that they have not resolved these things, they're still kind of walking with a limp. Um, so I don't know, but... Yeah, and I, I think it's really important to see that Jacob gets to make his own decisions, mm -hmm. and Esau gets to make Esau's own decisions, and at the end of the day, those decisions matter. Yes, they do. They, there could have been an Israel without a limp. Exactly. There, there could have been, uh, you know, a passing on of the blessing that didn't involve a crotch shot. Mm -hmm. But Jacob had made certain decisions, and those affect things now. And it's part of the story. And right. Israel goes on. The covenant goes on. Right. And it's part of their history then to see mm -hmm. these things and say, this is why our history turns yeah. out like it does, because these are the stories of our ancestors. And from here, uh, Jacob, who is now Israel, mm -hmm. is going to limp his way to Esau. So the patriarch has undergone another transformation, you know, this per perpetual conversion. And that story is going to continue when he finally comes face to face with Esau. So he's come face to face with himself. Yeah. He's come face to face with Adonai. And now he's got some more facing to do. So that will take us into Genesis chapter 33. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.